Welcome to the Mom Manual. Motherhood doesn't come with instructions, but it should. We are on a mission to highlight ordinary moms doing extraordinary things to build the ultimate mom manual. Every week, I have the distinct honor of speaking with women about the lessons they've learned and the inspiration that got them to where they are today. Join us for a conversation that will spark creativity, provide actionable tips, and celebrate the ordinary and extraordinary moments of motherhood. The Mom Manual starts now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mom Manual. I have another amazing guest for you guys today. Tiffany Wynn is a NICU nurse out of California joining us today to tell us all things preemies, babies, birth, new moms, all the things. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Tiffany, also known on social media as NICU Nurse Tiff. I've been a nurse for almost seven years now. And I absolutely love NICU. This is all I know. And I started out as a new grad in the NICU. It was one of those things where I stumbled upon it by accident in nursing school. I actually wanted to be a pediatric nurse since I am the oldest in my family and I've grown up taking care of kids. But then it just so happened to have a few days in the NICU and learned about this unique specialty, all about babies and preemies. And now here I am. I love it. And for anyone who's listening, you guys can't see, but behind her, Tiffany, you're going to have to turn it on. She has a super cool. It's oh, yes. Tiffany. I and can. I, I, I need can. to get one of those. It's like a, what is that? A neon light? Neon light. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So Tiffany, you are in practice, also doing some things on social media. What What are you seeing kind of day to day? What does your schedule look like? How do you balance both? So I typically work three 12-hour shifts a week. So I am a full-time nurse. I also am actually in grad school right now, getting my master's of science degree in nursing, specifically in nurse education, because one thing I absolutely love doing is teaching about just nursing and NICU, especially since that is my specialty. And so I kind of balance that into my life as well, doing school at the same time as working full-time. And then, of course, adding more to my plate, I also do social media. So I started out doing social media about three years ago, where, of course, the pandemic, everyone was super bored, didn't have a single hobby to do. And I just thought, what better way could I showcase something I absolutely love doing, which is nursing and teaching. And then so that's where I started my social media platform. So I have a YouTube channel where I teach all about NICU basics geared towards new grad nurses who are new to the NICU, but it definitely could help out a lot of NICU parents as well, because I do have some videos on there about how to feed your preemie patient, preemie babies. And I know that is a different process compared to, you know, feeding a typical newborn. We're just so ingrained in our minds on how this process may work, but it's a different type of learning curve when it comes to teaching a preemie baby how to eat for the first time. It takes a lot of patience and guidance on both ends. Not only does it require the baby to learn something new, but it's definitely a new thing for new parents as well. So I definitely highly recommend checking out my YouTube channel for some tips and advice. Um, But I also just go over nursing and NICU in general on my other social media platforms, which is Instagram and a little bit of TikTok. I love it. And I'm looking at it right now. And who is this handsome man that also looks like a nurse or a doctor in your picture? (laughs) That is my boyfriend. We are both nurses. And um, We work in completely different populations. So I work with babies and my boyfriend does work in the cardiac ICU. So he's working with the adult population. So it's nice because we do have a balance of different perspectives because all I know is babies and all he knows is adults. So it's nice to be able to share different opposite perspectives on the nursing That is so fun. I feel like this is like, if you guys look at our Instagram, you have to check it out. 
it's like a episode of Grey's Anatomy where you guys are both like super attractive and looking like <laughs> very fun. So I am not a NICU mom. I have four kids, but I never had any kids in the NICU. In fact, all my babies were huge. My Wow. Okay. You are so petite and oh. I, can't, I can't imagine <laughs> you pushing out a big baby. Oh man. I, well, I'm five, seven. My husband's six, two. So Oh, okay. The height, the height people. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I was ten pounds when I was born. I was huge. Wow. Okay. I know. Um, so my my smallest baby was my second daughter. She was eight pounds, and then my biggest baby was nine three. I want to say, and they were all like a week early. So just mm, big, okay. big babies. So when babies. I have friends who have a preemie or even like mm. a baby that's not a preemie but just small. Yeah. I hold that baby. I'm like, I've never, I've never held this baby. So Tiffany, who, what, like, what kind of babies are you typically seeing in the NICU? So in the NICU, our biggest population is premature babies. Mm -hmm. And so prematurity can be due to a variety of factors, but the most common is just due to pregnancy complications such as infection or preterm labor where the babies are just coming early. And so there's really no rhyme or reason as to why. It just really depends on each mom and what their history is. But the most common definitely is premature babies. We also have babies coming in for congenital anomalies as well or cardiac issues, awaiting surgeries, things like that. So we deal with a complex variety of issues. I'd say the most common we get is preemies. Preemies. And what is considered a preemie? Like how early, is it size or is it how early the baby comes? Yeah. So we consider it mostly by just how early the baby comes and size as well is a huge factor to that. Um, it kind of goes alongside it as well. Um, the earliest baby I've ever taken care of was a 20, almost 23 weaker. Mm, um, yeah, it was a 22 weaker and six days old. So oh my gosh, like super close. Yeah, they're so that, tiny, like literally this small. That yeah. is like the first, what is the first viable? It's it's about like 22, 24 weeks, right? Yeah, it changes and varies. I feel like every year they change it and and slowly decrease. It used to be 25 weeks and then slowly as years go on and on, it started to become 24, 23. And now we do have some babies that are born as early as 22 weeks. Yeah crazy because I mean, a baby at 22 weeks is that's uh, just over halfway. What yeah. I didn't know is a birth really is 40 weeks, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, you always, you always think, which is really like 10 months. Cause you always think nine months, but 40 weeks is it's a longer time. Yeah, that's um, Now, what about, do you guys have any of the babies with NAS in your nursery ever? Yes, we do. We do. I feel like I saw it a lot more at my previous hospital I used to work at in the Central Valley. And we were seeing a lot of babies coming in where there was potential drug exposure in utero. And so we do have some babies with NAS. And so yeah. NAS stands for neonatal, neonatal abstinence syndrome, where it's basically babies that were exposed to drugs in utero. And so we had a lot of those there and yeah, they just need a lot of love and care. And we do treat those babies yeah. quite often. We have a really big arm of our company. That's a philanthropy arm and we donate our weighted blankets for the NICU. So oh, wow. I think probably about 75 NICUs now. Yeah. And they, they that's use awesome. them for the infants with NAS yeah, and that loves because it. the washing system in hospitals is a nightmare. They typically mm -hmm. home at almost all of our hospitals. 
So we continue to donate whenever, whenever is needed, which is, is really amazing that we kind of have this give back portion. Um, but you know, with, with the, these infants, they're receiving other medications. So this is a non-pharmacological solution, which lines up with eat, sleep, console for anyone Mm -hmm. that's not a nurse or like, what are you guys talking about? But if you are listening and you are a NICU nurse and you do have NAS babies at your hospital, just email us at hospital at dreamlinebabyco.com. We'll put it in the notes and we will hook you guys up. Okay. Yeah, I love that. That's my experience with NICU is, is those sweet little NAS babies. Yeah. Actually, that's a funny story. That's what got me into NICU in the first place. No, actually, way. My, Wait, yeah, my first day in the NICU when I was in nursing school, I didn't get to do a whole lot. And because it was a really small unit, I think it was only like five beds and we had only two patients and one of them was an NAS baby. And, um, the baby was just, you know, really unconsolable, crying constantly, and they just need a lot of love and care. And so I just held that baby most of my shift. And just holding that baby in my arms made me want to advocate more for this patient population. And, you know, babies can't really speak for themselves and can't really advocate for themselves. So I wanted to be able to do that for them. And that's what got me into NICU. So it's really funny how that story kind of comes around. Oh my gosh, this is so full circle. And now you're to me that has a company that donates these products. I love that. We'll have to connect more on that after. Definitely. Let's jump into your first takeaway. So Tiffany's going to share with us some tips on how to care for your preemie. Yes. So I know this world can be extremely scary. I mean, having a baby, especially your first baby is already scary enough, right? It's like a whole new world caring for a little tiny human. But for preemies, it's a lot different just because the biggest risk for them is breathing can be a huge problem. And that's why they end up in the NICU a lot of times. And so there's a lot of other concerns that we are very careful about. And one of them being just learning how to feed, making sure they're breathing appropriately, things like that. And so it's very important. I think the number one takeaway from NICU that we always want to share to our families is doing safe sleep. And that is making sure that your baby is sleeping flat on their backs while they're in the cribs, no random items, loose items in the cribs, such as blankets, pacifiers, toys, things like that. Cause we want to prevent what's called SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, where it basically it's where babies just suffocate on just random items that could be inside of their crib. So that's super important. One thing that they found through research that is huge risk factor is preemies. Preemies are a high risk for that. And just babies in general, but preemies especially because their airways are so small. A higher Mm -hmm. risk of SIDS, you're saying? Yes, higher higher risk. And so it's very important to just do safe sleep at home and making sure to provide safety for your baby. Um, Other tips too that I think is also scary is learning how to do feeds, which I talked about in one of my videos that I do. And I felt like that video really shows a lot about techniques you could do because with babies that are newborn full term, they already have those coordination skills. But if you're preterm, you haven't really had the process to really fully grow all your your nerves and all those things and your brain. And so the capacity of your brain to be able to learn how to do those things needs the full 40 weeks to develop. And so if you're born early, you you, you lack some of that a little bit. So it just takes a lot of training and on both ends, like I mentioned. And so for preemies, sidelining is something that we teach our families in the NICU, where it's basically, as it sounds, you put your baby um, to the side. And that way, if they're eating, they're not choking on the food that they're eating. So typically, as we feed babies that are full term, we usually, you know, sit them upright, we just feed them like in our arms and things like that. That's usually how we feed a baby. But with preemies, we have to side lie them on their side. 
And that way, anything, if they're choking or they're eating too fast, any of the milk can just go off to the side of their cheek. So it could prevent them from choking. And then pacing feeds is also some things that we do to help teach babies how to eat. So basically after maybe three to five sucks, you want to tilt the bottle down to the side just to give a chance for your baby to breathe. Yeah. Because that's something that's still learning process for them. The breathing that I mentioned is something that is still an ongoing thing that they're learning how to do. Eating and breathing at the same time is still a complex issue that they're still learning. So we have to try to teach them those things. When a baby is born, and I know it's different, like for every baby, you mentioned 23 weeks, but what what is, and that has to be an outlier, I would imagine. What is like the common kind of preemie? Is that like 36 weeks or like what what do they consider full term? So full term is 40 weeks. And okay. so if a baby comes in at full term, then there there's probably complications with like infection during pregnancy, other factors such as like mom having hypertension, diabetes, things like that is um, some common reasons why a baby that's full term would come into the NICU or jaundice as well. You may have heard of that mm. term where your baby's yeah. yellow. Um, happened to us with one of my daughters, yeah. Yeah, full term. But typically for preemies, I mean, I've seen them across varying age groups, anywhere between that 23 to that 40 weeks. But I think that happy middle that we get most frequently, I want to say is about probably the 28 weeks to 30 week mark is where we see a lot of them, especially with like twins. Yeah, twins we see very often being born premature. Um, And so we see them a lot around like, yeah, 26, maybe 26 to like 30 weeks. Got it. Cause I know like all my kids were 39 weeks, but, and they were huge, but they weren't <laughs> preemies. They were just like, okay, go home. You, you know, you're before yeah. the 40 weeks, but my OBGYN actually scheduled an induction for all four of my kids one week mm, before. Fire. And it was mostly just because I wanted to control my schedule, which in hindsight sounds crazy, but <laughs> at a startup and I was like traveling all the time. Like yeah. I don't know exactly when I'm out and exactly when I'm coming back. So, you know, when these, when these infants come early and they're preemies, you mentioned the breathing, like what else is those, the last pieces of development that parents have to think about when they have a preemie. So breathing, so it's lung development, what else like eyes, you know, sight, hearing. Yes. I mean, it's not fully all, developed. Of it, all of it actually is a yeah. huge, like for preemies, everything is at risk for sure. And then when you mentioned eyes, that is also a huge risk factor because their eyes are not fully developed as well. So you may have babies that are coming in premature on oxygen. And actually oxygen is also a common thing that could cause potential eye problems as well, because it is something that actually constricts the vessels in the eyes. And so it could potentially lead to blindness if we're giving oxygen mm-hmm. over long periods of time. And so, I mean, of course, it just if the baby needs oxygen, the baby needs oxygen. But it's also important for us as nurses too, to... Um, make sure to give often only as needed and increase it only when necessary, you know, and especially in emergent situations, not turning up oxygen super quickly and right. trying to go and pace it out. But yeah, we do have some babies that potentially are at risk for that. And so they'll have eye exams, maybe outpatient when the baby gets discharged. And that's something you may expect if your baby was born pretty early and had to get frequent eye exams. That's something you may do outpatient. But I think it really just depends on the diagnosis because you will have follow-ups. So if your baby came in for cardiac issues, you will have follow-up outpatient where you will go to cardiologists and monitor for that. Or if your baby came in for some gut issues, you will be following a GI doctor. So it is very diagnosis dependent for sure. So I can say for all what you may or may not expect to happen after, it just really depends on what the baby came in for. 
but and yeah, eyes, eyes is a huge risk as a parent. Sure. I'm thinking about those, those little babies and they have the things over their eyes. It looks like, and, and I think that's maybe only for jaundice babies where they're mm-hmm. in the bed and they have like the eyes and, and they are so tiny and it looks so cute. I've seen pictures of that. Today's episode was brought to you by Dreamland Baby. I want to introduce you to a product that hundreds of thousands of parents use to help their baby sleep, the Dreamland Baby Weighted Sleep Sack. Hi, I'm Tara Williams, host of the Mom Manual and founder of Dreamland Baby. When my son Luke was six months old, he was still waking up every hour and a half. I was completely exhausted, frustrated, and at my wit's end. Sound familiar? My solution to create a gently weighted sleep sack that babies can safely wear to help them feel calm, fall asleep faster, and stay asleep longer. The award-winning doctor-approved Dream Weighted Sleep Sack and Swaddle features our proprietary cover calm technology, evenly distributed weight from your baby's shoulders to toes to help naturally reduce stress and allow your little one to feel relaxed and sleep soundly. If you're struggling to get your baby to sleep for longer stretches and go down easier, you're not alone. This product was a game changer for my son and can be for your family too. And right now we've got a special discount exclusive to mom manual listeners. Use code MOMMANUAL15 at checkout to get 15% off site-wide. Isn't it time for you to invest in rest? Then the other thing I've heard is then they say the adjusted age, right? Yes. So the correct oh, and that, mm-hmm. that carries on is at the first year that adjusted age. And can you tell us what that means for anyone who's like, what, what yeah. is that? Yeah. So it's a term that we use in NICU. It's called the corrected age or adjusted age where it's basically, so your baby was born, let's say 26 weeks, then until they get like our main focus is until they get to the 40 weeks is where oh. they're supposed to be full term. So uh, we talk about what is their what is their corrected age currently today at this yeah. point. So let's say if the baby was born 26 weeks, yeah. then um, now it's 24 hours and they're 26 and one. That is the corrected age. Does that make sense? So we we just count down the days until they reach full term at 40 weeks. Got it. Yeah. And then can you expect, so if I'm a mom and I have a baby who's born at 30 weeks, like, am I going to be in the hospital for 10 weeks until that 40 week mark for sure? Or how does that look for discharge? So we tell parents um, that it is to be expected that you will be there until your baby is full term. That is at least a minimal expectation and that it could extend depending on what the baby is in the hospital for. A lot of babies can be waiting upon surgery and they need to get bigger. And so they may have to wait past the 40 weeks. 40 weeks is really an average. So that's something you'd want to expect just to reach that minimal term age in order to go home. But there's a lot of criteria in the NICU that we look out for in order to be considered for discharge. And one of the main things that we focus on is trying to get either to completely no oxygen support at all, or very, very minimal amount, maybe like one liter cannula, um, something very low where the, where the parents can go home and be able to monitor it properly. And of course, hospitals will always make sure you have the proper equipment and getting supplies and resources outside of the hospital. So maybe a home health nurse or something like that. So they will connect you to to resources like that. But typically we want to make sure that the baby's on very minimal amount of oxygen, because if they're needing more than that, that's something we want to monitor in the hospital. Other things we want to consider is weight gain. It's very important that babies are able to gain weight. And so we usually typically 
go from anywhere between five to seven days of consistent weight gain those days. So if there is a weight loss in between those five to seven days, then we start the countdown again. Um, every facility is different, but at least the two facilities that I worked at is that's our criteria. And then also to being able to eat, whether that be about 80 to 90% of their feeds by mouth, or sometimes babies don't. And we have babies that go home with G-tubes and where that's basically a tube that is surgically placed into the abdomen to directly to the stomach where babies can eat. So if babies are not able to eat by mouth, then usually they'll go home with a G-tube um, where parents are able to feed the babies through that so they can get the nutrition they need or very rarely, but sometimes we do have babies going home with NG tubes. So that's a nasogastric tube that actually goes into their nose mm-hmm. and it goes directly down into their stomach and parents have to be able to learn how to place the tube if it were to ever come out, um, how to properly check for placement and how to manage and feed babies through the NG tube. And then of course, with those, you need to do outpatient checkups to make sure you're doing things appropriately. I've seen that on infants who have like cancer or other things, but what, why else would a baby have one of those NG tubes? Yeah. So there preemies just, you know, there's times where, you know, now they're full term and they're still not developing those skills and coordination still. Um, a lot of other times too, we have babies with genetic complications and so they are unable to eat by right. mouth. And so sometimes we may end up having to place the G tube in order for them to go home. And so we have some parents who get very hesitant because they're concerned about, you know, a surgery and they want to leave, but they're concerned about this potential surgery and what can that hold the baby back and things like that. I know it may seem intimidating because it is something surgically placed into the abdomen, but in the end, the whole goal is to get you to go home with your baby. And if feeding is really the only factor that is keeping the baby in the hospital, then we, we want to do what we can to get the baby home. And a lot of babies just thrive a lot better at home with their families and loved ones. And if this is really the only thing holding them back is just getting a G-tube, then a lot of times um, parents sense. just end, end up consenting to it. And so that way the baby can go home and they do really well. And the, it's not a permanent thing. It's actually only until the baby is able to um, develop those skills as they grow older. And then hopefully they can surgically take out the G-tube and never have to need it ever again. So, Yeah. And this is making me think about the actual parents. So what is like, is there a hotel for parents? Can they stay? Do they have to drop in? Like what, how do they see their baby? What does that look like? And how do they feed their baby? Yeah. So we actually have a lot of babies coming in and out from different areas in California, but also flying in from different states as well. And so we, at least the two facilities I've worked at, we do have what's called a Ronald McDonald house where it's for families that live about 50 miles away from the hospital and it's free to all families. It just takes a registration process. They do a background check and things like that. And then families that are expected to have extended stays are allowed to stay in the family house. And then also we usually have a room, whether, I mean, every hospital is a little different, but I've worked at places that do have private rooms. And so families can stay at the bedside to be able to do cares for the baby and stay overnight. So that's also an option as well. I just think about when, when I had my kids, I brought them home and I'm like feeding them what feels like around the clock. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. how to leave and then come back. Right. And I guess you could do it if you abandoned breastfeeding. So what is, what does that look like when you have an infant with an extended stay in the NICU? 
we know breast milk is liquid gold and it's always the best. Right. Um, yeah. We can do it. But what is that? What is that? Those stats? And, you know, if you don't know the stats, that's okay. But just in your experience, what have you seen? I mean, did the moms really persevere with that or does it fall off more often? The breastfeeding side. Yeah, I think definitely breastfeeding can be a challenge, especially if your baby is very critical. A lot of times uh, breastfeeding cannot be an option at this moment. And we focus on baby's care and getting to them in a stable place. Um, And so unfortunately, breastfeeding becomes a secondary thing. But one thing that we always push for and want parents to still feel involved in that. And if that's a goal of yours, we still encourage to do pumping. Yeah, that and Every, like you mentioned the liquid gold, it's so important. Like every little drop of breast milk, we can still use it in many ways. And even if the baby is very sick and critical and unable to breastfeed, we still use those drops for what we call oral care, where we actually give the breast milk in the baby's mouth. And actually the probiotics and the nutrients in the breast milk really help um, the baby. And of course it tastes great as well. Um, So we encourage just continue to pump every three to four hours and save that milk because we do freeze it. And then eventually when the baby is able to start eating and feeding, we will use um, the breast milk. And then hopefully as the baby gets older and bigger and closer to term, they're developing more motor skills to eat. And then we work with lactation nurses to help actually bring that connection back together. And where we're able to bring them in, they'll teach and help the baby learn how to coordinate and do breastfeeding. And so it's not one of those things where my baby's in the NICU, we can't breastfeed ever again. Like, no, we still work towards that goal at the end and we'll do whatever we can to help make it happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing we had was navigating the world of NICU parents. I feel like we definitely talked a lot about this, but any other kind of tips for those, if we have a NICU parent listening, maybe like some do's and some don'ts. I'm yeah. sure lots of stories. I think, I feel a lot of parents that come into NICU are very intimidated just by overall, like how the NICU looks, you know, the beeping, the monitoring, everything like that is very scary. But I think some tips is don't be afraid to speak up or advocate for what you feel is concerning. I feel like a lot of parents just um, can be intimidated to mention things because it's just overall a very scary environment. But if something were to ever concern you, just bring it up to the nurse or any of the providers. And that way we can address your concerns because a lot of times parents know their baby's the best. I mean, we have yeah. nurses and they're they're so great at what they do, but we're, they're not there 24-7 and know this baby to the T, you know? And so it can be challenging to know the full history and story. And so if parents are coming in more frequently, they know a lot more about the baby and the likes and dislikes of the baby and maybe things that seem a little off about this baby today. And that way they can mention those concerns. Other things too, to be involved is just everything that um, the nurses do ask if you can be a part of it too. So whether that be changing the diaper or being able to do the bath for the first time, those are some ways to be involved as well. And a lot of times hospitals do roundings during day shift where the team will come to each bedside and discuss the overall plan of care, the patient's status and things like that. So it's very important to also be in part of those discussions by coming during rounding time. So ask the team or ask your nurse, when is rounding typically happen during the day? And can I be involved in that? And a lot of times we would love parents to come and join us. Yeah. And listen to the expected plan of care, bring up any concerns. That'd be a perfect time to do so. And if there's things that you don't understand or um, words that seem scary, ask someone to explain those to you. And we're more than happy to do that. It's, I know in a very intimidating place and hearing all these medical terms can be scary, but definitely being a part of rounds is a way to be introduced 
to this new world and learning all your team members and people that are being involved in your baby's care and then bringing up concerns and questions, that's a perfect time to do so. And then just any other thing too, we want parents to feel like this is still a place where you can be involved. So don't feel as if you aren't able to do anything. If you want to hold the baby, if you want to, even just sometimes when the baby is super critical, we encourage handholding where it's placing a hand on the baby's feet and kind of containing them. You can also put a hand on their head too, if that's okay. And you can ask your nurse too. And that way the baby also feels contained and safe. Mm. So there's just times where the baby can be very critical. There's a lot of things going on, but touch is always a great way, positive touch. And um, a lot of stimuli can happen. We're doing a lot of labs and poking and things like that. So having a a familiar touch, like parents coming in every day, just doing a few minutes of touch is still highly encouraged and can benefit the baby a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I think when, when my first daughter was born, I remember she was born and the labor was really difficult and I was just so tired. And, you know, I think I pushed for like two hours. Like it was very dramatic first birth. Mm. So they put her on my chest and I remember looking at her and just thinking, oh my gosh, like I felt nothing. Like I didn't mm. thought I would feel fireworks and love. And I just kind of looked at her and I was like, almost like, who is this in a way? Yeah. <laughs> and when, when she was in my stomach or my belly, I felt so connected to her. Mm-hmm. Like, and I felt like we were one. So I thought the moment she was born, I would pick her up and I would like cry. Mm. I just remember feeling nothing really except tired. And then, you know, they brought her back the next day or later that day. And, and I still didn't really feel anything. And, but what I felt was shame and guilt. Like, Oh my gosh, I'm a monster. I should feel so happy because my baby is here and she's healthy and I have her. And then my like love for her grew over time. And it was through like breastfeeding and holding and changing and doing all the things you're saying, like changing the diaper, putting her in a bath, you know, dressing her. And I think it was, it's just that act of, you know, it's the ultimate, not sacrifice, but you are, you are keeping another person alive, right? Because the baby is so helpless. And I think a baby being in the NICU, I would imagine robs the parents of that a little bit Yes, because so these, these actions you're talking about, just even changing a diaper sounds insignificant, but it really is like a bonding moment for the parent. I know some parents, the baby's born and they're just crying and they're connected. It wasn't me. So if it's not you, don't be, don't feel like you're a monster. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm hearing Tiffany, the main thing really as a parent is just be involved, be involved. Yes, as much as you can. definitely. Yeah. As much as you can to the extent that you can. And I know that it can be a lot of factors that kind of affect how you can do it, but there's so many ways and just ask. There are ways that is possible. Okay. So now give us some of the don'ts. Like I'm sure you've had the monster parents that are demanding things. <laughs> give us some examples of if you're a Nikki parent, this is what not to do. Okay. So I actually get asked this a lot about, so how do you deal with difficult families or have you had a crazy family before where, you know, they just drove you insane and things like that. And there's probably horror stories everywhere, not just in NICU, but in other units as well. But honestly, I really have no um, feeling to this in a sense that I don't ever consider any family to be difficult or hard to work with just because I try my best to understand their point of view where they're in a new environment, scary, Mm -hmm. overwhelming. They were robbed from their experience and it's totally appropriate to feel the way that they do. And just trying to understand where they're coming from. I feel like that helps to not 
be bothered by some of the things and more of just trying to be understanding. I think a lot of it more is just feeling of kind of hopelessness and that you just have, you can't control the situation. And I think that affects a lot of families as well. And so I try my best to just be there for them in ways that I can supporting them. I think what really helps is for me, I try to verbalize the things that I do so that it doesn't seem scary. You going in and touching my baby, like, what are you doing? And so being able to communicate those things, but maybe you're working with a nurse that doesn't do something like that, which, you know, not everyone is. And so maybe some things that can help is just asking like, Oh, what are you doing? And I, I don't think it's out of, um, you know, like, helicoptery or things like that more just asking general just genuine concern or general like what concerns about what are you doing and just curious curiosity I think more than anything um but I think don'ts is being rude about it (laughs) yeah so like what are you doing about baby and why are you touching them you know I think we have to do our cares for the patient this is all for the baby's sake and making sure they are stable and healthy and doing whatever we can we we don't want to hurt your baby trust us we do not want to hurt your baby we just have to do what we need to do and so all our intentions are never to hurt or cause harm and we do things for the sake of the baby and so i think just being better communicators in both parties is a great way to just break the disconnect um if there's something you're concerned about ask and that's totally fine instead of yelling or blaming someone. And because this is not what we want to do. We do not want to cause harm. Um, I think other don'ts, I'm not really sure. Oh, I'm thinking, what I'm thinking more like, is there, is there anybody that goes in the opposite direction and they're not necessarily grieving, but they're just so overwhelmed and scared. They're yeah. like, I'm just not even going to come. Like, I'm just going to stay home and like, call me when my baby mm. leave. Like, is that ever a scenario or are parents more usually over more overburdening? Oh yes. That definitely happens where, um, they're so disconnected from the situation. They don't know what to do. And so they don't come visit, not involved. Mm. Um, don't put them the rounds. Don't even want to touch the baby, even though, nurses will offer, do you want to hold? Do you want to change the diaper? And there's just the disconnect. And I think also too, when you were talking about having your baby on your um, chest and not feeling that emotion, it actually happens a lot to women where there's just postpartum depression that they're not recognizing. Right. Um, and that's totally common and it happens. And a lot of people don't recognize that to be something that could occur. And they feel just complete disconnect from the situation and already even though your baby was healthy, you already were having those feelings. So yeah. I think it just heightens a lot more, especially when your baby's in NICU and now you physically cannot touch them. There's a lot of things yeah. going on. And so that can happen too, where just parents don't come and aren't involved. So I think more of it is trying our best to communicate to them as best as we can. And so that way they're fully understanding, just encouraging them to come and be a part of the cares as well is super important. Yeah. And, and our last topic, and I know we're almost over time, any general tips for first time parents? So not NICU parents, but I mean, it's probably almost more of the same. Yeah. Some general tips I would say is I know as a first time parent, especially it could be pretty scary to just care for a little human, but with preemies, especially too. And I think the most important thing is that we mentioned before being involved in any way that you can. Um, And if you aren't, don't also feel that you're a bad parent if you can't come because we actually do have a lot of families that live far away. Like I mentioned, they live in a whole nother state. They're unable to come um, or they have other children and they're very busy. And so 
that happens and we don't blame you or discourage you, but in ways you can be involved too in, in those situations like that is um, calling to get updates and yeah. being involved in that way. And also too, if you need resources, like we do have families that live far away, we do have resources where we could try to get you some transportation or um, vouchers for you to be able to come like bus vouchers and things like that. And that way we try to make it accessible for you as much as possible. But just overall tips for new parents is I feel like the world of NICU or just babies in general is very scary. So asking questions whenever you have any concerns is something that is all parents should be able to feel comfortable doing. Yeah. And just being involved, I think is the best way because really? the babies will yeah, feel, that's, will I feel keep, it. They feel it. They yeah. know. I keep hearing no. that from you mm-hmm. over and over, really be involved, be involved, be involved. And I think as a parent who had four children who were not in the NICU, it's pretty easy to say, oh yeah, of course be involved. But when you have other kids at home, I mean, that is a burden on not just the mom or the dad, but it's the whole family. If you're having to go to the hospital and, you know, you want to be with them and then maybe you're not with your other kids. So Mm -hmm. it's not not a um, situation I think anybody would want to be in, but I, I think the world of nurses, the NICU and labor and delivery are like best of the best. I have never met um, just a more like kind, compassionate group of people. So Tiffany, we are very thankful for all you do in the NICU for sure. Um, Thank you. Can you tell us all the places that everyone can find you? Yeah. So you can find me in my socials is at NICU Nurse Tiffs. And you can find me on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. And I try my best to educate about the specialty and give tips and research on there. So if you have any questions or concerns also feel free to message me and that way I can share you some information that I know but yeah that's where you'll be okay I love it thanks so much Tiffany